Are you ready for the next level of leadership? It's going to be here before you know it. Today's leaders need the skills, connections, and savvy to become top professionals in their fields. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet people who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here's your host, Maureen Metcalf. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of Metcalf & Associates. I work with leaders in their organizations, identifying the trends that will most likely disrupt their business and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage those trends to create strategic advantage. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also an adjunct faculty member of universities in the U.S. and Germany. This interview is brought to you in collaboration with the Collaborative Brain Trust, bringing together the best and brightest problem solvers to focus on where your organization wants to go and how to get there. With more than 200 consultants, experienced top-level executives, university administrators, organizational experts, they identify the issues that hinder or elevate organizations and customize practical solutions and uh, build buy-in to help your organizational success. And Dr. James Meeser is one of their consultants. He is the Chancellor Emeritus of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's a professor of music and senior consultant of special initiatives at the UNC Institute for Arts and Humanities. As Chancellor from 2000 to 2008, he articulated the vision that UNC should be America's leading public university. James received his undergraduate degree in organ performance with honors at the University of Texas in 1961. As a Fulbright scholar, he studied in Berlin and Paris in 1961 and 62. His master's degree in musicology was confirmed, conferred in 1964 by the University of Texas, and he received his doctorate in musical arts degree from the University of Michigan in 1967. So I want this show, the Voice America series, to help leaders update how they think about and behave as leaders in a time of change. So I invite you as our listeners to listen closely to Dr. Meeser's expertise and think about how you might apply that to what you're doing, either in your professional setting or in your family or in community activities. So often our leaders come from a business setting, and I'm really excited that Dr. Meeser has had an extremely senior role in a university, and yet his background is in music. And so a lot of our conversation will be about how he leads and how he came to that leadership role at what point in his career, because he has been leading in many ways since early in his career and, and since being in university. But coming out of an area that we don't often look to as business leaders, we're not always looking to uh, people in the arts as exceptional leaders, and yet he has held clearly an exceptional career. So, James, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to be with you. Look forward to this conversation. Me too. So let's start with what are some of the key factors that contributed to your success? Tell us a little bit more about your background. 
Well, I grew up in uh, I grew up in in Texas in uh, in Lubbock, Texas. I was the I had very supportive parents. My mother was a college graduate. My father was not because uh, he his father had died when he was nine years old, so he had to go to work and and never had the opportunity to go to college. But he was always both of my parents were extremely supportive of me, and I grew up in a in a community with with first rate public school education. I mean, I had great teachers and in elementary and junior and senior high school and I was well prepared to go to go to university. I also had a school system that was so progressive that uh, and and this may be surprising growing up in West Texas but it was it was very progressive in that it it allowed me to take time out of school to go across the street from my junior high school to take piano lessons so i i uh, i continued my i started my musical education actually as a as a school student in Texas that's really interesting. And then you went on to university. Tell us a little bit about, you know, we, we believe, I think, from a research perspective, that having international experiences expand our capacity at whatever age we do it. And you happened to have the opportunity early in your, or later in your college, earlier in your life. Right. Uh, I, I went to, uh, from from Lubbock, I went to, uh, as, you, as you recounted in that introduction, I went to the University of Texas in Austin. Uh, I, I decided, as a high school student, I decided to major in music, and that was not an easy decision because I had, I had an interest in the law, I had a strong interest in architecture, but, I, but, but music was the driving, compelling force. And, and so I went to Austin really to, to study with the principal teacher of organ at the University of Texas, who was also the dean of the College of Fine Arts, William Doty, and uh, he'd been the teacher for one of my one of my role models growing up in in Lubbock, uh, Jerry Hancock, who went on to be a very well known American organist, uh, was five years older than I, and I, I so he was I copied him and I followed him to Austin, and then while I was in Austin. I got involved as a student. I got involved with the civil rights movement. I got involved with the campus Y and 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 student politics. And 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 once one day, Doty called me in and he said, uh, James, why I was the candidate for the student assembly. And he said, uh, and he knew I was a very serious music student. And I think he was surprised by this. And he said, I'm just curious. Why are you why why have you decided to get into student politics? And I said. Well, Dean Doty, believe it or not, I have interest beyond music, and I, I'm, I've gotten engaged in the civil rights campaign on this campus. We were, the students actually were leading the efforts to to integrate UT Austin when it was still mostly segregated. Uh, all, all of the commercial establishments across the street from the campus were segregated, and and it was so civil rights was very active in the. This was in the 1960s, and uh, so he said a very interesting thing to me is I'm, by this time I'm a junior an undergraduate junior and he said well James if that's what you're thinking about then I think you ought to have a you ought to be thinking about a career in academic administration and here you know this is a very unusual thing to say to a to an undergraduate who hasn't even have a, an advanced degree yet but he planted that seed and so you continued in your activism or was that just at a point in time no, I continued in my activism uh, all all through my undergraduate uh, study, uh, at, at, and graduated from from UT in 1961, uh, and I was successful in earning a, a full ride, and I went to and so it, to study the organ, and which and these were. The Fulbright grants still are today, 
uh, one of the most competitive uh, graduate study. Uh, most m- most people who get Fulbrights are much older than I was. I was I was just a fresh undergraduate. Most people get Fulbrights out of their uh, usually from their graduate study. Go go to uh, in music. Go to Europe and study. But I was very fortunate to get one. Went to and my Fulbright took me to Berlin in 1961. So I and Berlin, if you think about it, was the center, the absolute center of the Cold War. The wall had just been built in August of 1961. I got there in September. I saw actually I was in Bavaria in language camp when the wall went up. I saw it go up on German television, and uh, it was it was a fascinating time to be there. My roommate, uh, I got a room at the Technische Universität, and my roommate was a was an East German who had come through uh, uh, across on two days before the wall went up. And his best friend had gotten stuck in East Germany, uh, and I went back almost every Sunday as a courier, uh, taking messages, back, smuggling money. I did all kinds of stuff. I nearly got thrown into an East German jail because we had a we had to plot to get him out uh, <laughs> before the wall was really secure. It was. I had a fascinating time, and at the same time, I had tremendous musical experiences in Berlin, studying with a great teacher, and and my uh, so my musical art developed, but also my my involvement in politics was only sharpened. So how did those experiences, the civil rights activism, and this fascinating um, East Germany, West Germany split impact your thinking and your behavior as a university administrator? Well, they, it had a great impact. I mean, the whole time I was in Berlin, um, I because because I had such a heavy heavy concentration in music in my undergraduate experience at, at Austin, um, I I was also homesick for America. I was remember I was only twenty twenty one years old, and so I I spent I, I began a voracious reading of American literature while I was in while I was a student in Berlin. I checked checking out books out of the American. America House Library, the USIS had a, a, a library of, of American literature there in West Berlin. That was all part of the American government's uh, Cold War activity, I guess, it was, it, 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 as a, to support the, the, our, our involvement in, the, in, in, West, in West Berlin and West Germany. So it, it, it was all very formative. And then... And then when I came back, went to took a master's degree in Austin, and then went to the University of Michigan for my doctoral work, uh, where I, where I, frankly, was a, uh, and and I, and I served as a church organist in Detroit, and I was, I was appalled, frankly, at the, at the sort of lax attitude of, that I found in this in Detroit and in Ann Arbor on civil rights, where. I, I've been on the cutting edge of civil rights in Austin, and I've been on the cutting edge of the Cold War in Berlin, and then then I found people just you know kind of not taking all these issues so seriously, and I was appalled by that. And so, at this point, you're doing your PhD in Ann Arbor. Right. What did you What did you do about it? You're you've now moved from Texas to Michigan, and I'm surprised that it was that different. Well, uh, actually, when I got to Michigan, I got fully, I got really fully engaged in being a student again and being a being hmm. a musician. And I was, at that point, I was absolutely dedicated to uh, building a career and as a as a concert organist. So I I sort of put away my 
my politics and I put away my involvement in, in anything other than the concentrated study of music and, and perfecting my art uh, and doing the scholarship of a, of a doctoral student in, in, in music history and musicology so that um, I was, by, after two years of residence, I was almost through with my doctorate. My teacher came to me one day and said uh, she'd had a call from the dean of of fine arts at the University of Kansas, and their organist was retiring. And this was in the days before affirmative action, before when university searches were done it very informally. And this, and the dean had he called my teacher at Michigan, and he called the Eastman School of Music a professor and asked for, I think, a handful of names. And and I got, and I was sent down there. I was recommended, and I went down and auditioned for this job, and and got it. So as, at 27 years of age, I I became a tenure track faculty member at the University of Kansas, and this is also very interesting because this set me uh, this also set me on my musical career path, but it also set me on my administrative path because my position at Kansas was assistant professor, university organist, and chairman of the Department of Organ. It was a two-person Department of Organ, but. But by being chair of this tiny little department, that gave me a seat on the administrative council of the School of Fine Arts at KU. And so I started seeing university administration from the inside out. And so you're teaching and you're being a university administrator. What early lessons did you learn from that role? Well... I learned mostly how uh, uh, the, the, dean, the dean who had hired me was uh, was something of an autocrat, and uh, uh, he. I learned mostly negative lessons about if I ever want, if I ever became a dean, I would. This is what I wouldn't do. I, 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 it was it was all the the reforms I wanted to, but I wasn't planning on being a dean. I really didn't have. I'd sort of put that aside. I was totally consumed with building my career, with building a, 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 a program in Oregon. I wanted to attract the best graduate students. I wanted to build a reputation for myself. And so I set about, for the first decade of my time at Kansas, I was solely dedicated on my, my on building the department that, I, that I'd been called to, to chair. Um, and I, I had an interesting strategy for doing that, because shortly after I got there, my colleague, the only other faculty member in that department, left. And I was left with the opportunity of filling that position or not filling it. And I decided I made a very calculated and and I think now I look back a very strategic decision not to fill the position but to, but to break it into about three graduate assistantships and I could I began to lure students uh, my former <laughs> classmates actually of mine who were in the master's program in Michigan they were all my first doctoral students at, at Kansas we had just started the doctor of musical arts degree and so I began began building a graduate program and then I used some of the resources in that empty line to build a to, to create a summer institute in organ and church music, and I started inviting the greatest organists and, and church musicians in the world to come to Kansas to lead these summer institutes, which attracted a lot of national attention, and began to to, to bring attention to a program which was essentially non-existent before I got there. So I was I was totally focused on program building. Uh, building that department and building my own career as a concert artist. And so 
at that point, you said it turned out to be strategic in retrospect. What led you to to take that kind of approach? Is this was this just intuitive and instinctual, or um, you, you had some model you were following? It was it was intuitive. Uh, I, I I think it truly was because there really wasn't a model for what I did. Um, the, the the program was was uh, the, the professor I had replaced uh, had been there for a long long time, and he he had told his students that. Uh, the organ world was coming to an end when he retired because there wasn't anybody else who could teach organ but him. And so the, basically the, the department was empty. There were just no majors. And so I had to build this, this program from scratch. The good news is that the university had just approved uh, the creation of the Doctor of Musical Arts degree. They hadn't offered any of those degrees yet. That was the degree that I had earned at Michigan. And so I, I actually, uh, uh, through building this program, we uh, we offered uh, the first Doctor of Musical Arts uh, degree earned at Kansas was one of my students. And after that, and then a, a number followed. And, and now the Kansas Organ Department is one of the strongest in the country. And uh, and it's all, it, I built it. I mean, it's, but it was intuitive that, uh, that that idea of breaking this empty position into graduate assistant positions to, in order to attract graduate students. Because otherwise, why would anybody go to Kansas? I mean, uh, I was, uh, no one had ever heard of me. Um, and at the same time, I was, then the, my second strategy was getting concerts wherever I could by uh, uh, offering to trade recitals with colleagues in the Midwest. First of all, in the Midwest, my goal was to get international management. And ultimately, about four or five years later, uh, I did, and I and I was I got into the best management in the country for organists, and I and I by the by twenty years later, I was one of the leading concert organists in America. But I it, it was a it was a building that I had to do from the ground up, starting with my appointment at at KU as a faculty member. Well, with that, we're going to go on break. And the thing that I'm taking away from this is you took risks, you you did experiments, presumably some were better than others, and through, it sounds like tenacity, hard work, and experimentation, you really built a program and also built a personal reputation that were exceptional. Yeah, I think that's true. Cool. We're going to go on break. I'm with Dr. James Meeser, and we will be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Metcalf & Associates is a management consulting and leadership development firm dedicated to helping leaders, their management teams, and their organizations implement innovative leadership and business practices to help create market differentiation necessary to thrive in this rapidly changing environment. As the author of eight award-winning leadership books, Maureen Metcalf and her associates are positioned to help you and your organization grow and thrive. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen is ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your needs through her expertise in keynote speaking, leadership coaching and training, transformational and organizational growth consulting. For your business, we can help with facilitated leadership retreats, organizational planning, culture alignment, individual and organizational assessments, online leadership development programs, and one-on-one or corporate-wide leadership development sessions. Move forward with Metcalf & Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. 
We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. This is Maureen Metcalf, and we're joined by Dr. James Meeser. He is walking us through how his career evolved as both a musician and then the Chancellor Emeritus for UNC. So how he transitioned from a focus in music into a university leadership role. And so one, I'm curious about that. And two, as we go along, I would love to hear more about what you learned in music that made you a good administrator. But let's talk about now the transition from um, growing this program into university administration. I was at I went to I went to KU in 1967, and in 1974 75, my by the by the, by the mid 70s, my career was really going well. I was under national management. Um, uh, the program at, at Lawrence was attracting national attention. We were getting really good students, and um, my career was just humming. So in 1974 75, the dean retired, uh, the longtime dean who had been there for I think 25 or 30 years um, the autocratic guy who, who actually hired me but uh, I was I, 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 he was a negative role model in many ways um, so the faculty came to me and they said what, we would love for you we want you to be the next dean and the provost said, made the same kind of, and I really wrestled with whether I wanted to do this because I knew that it was going to take, take a huge hit on, on my performance career and, and yet I, and which I was determined to keep going. So I, but I, 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 I thought it through, thought about it carefully and accepted the, the, that offer and said, I, but I said, I'm going to only go do it for five years and then I'm absolutely going back to the faculty. Well, I did it for five and then I, I did it for another five. I, I wound up doing it for 11 years. Um, I managed to keep my concert career going. I, I had to really cut back. I only accepted a few, a handful of graduate students. 
but but I did all, I, uh, but I did it and uh, I don't think I was I, I, I well first of all I, I, I instituted a lot of reforms I told you that I, uh, everything I saw in in, in my predecessor I, I, I wanted to change <laughs> this was and so for the, for example we had the very first performance of jazz on the stage of the recital hall at the University of Kansas in the history of the university because my predecessor would walk through the practice rooms uh, and any time he heard a student practice, playing jazz he would he would go open the door and say you're going to lose your scholarship if you play any more jazz here so it was it was that kind of environment and so I, I initiated a lot of reforms. I, I think I was I was I was a reform dean, and I enjoyed I enjoyed my. But it was it was not easy balancing my a performance career and doing this administrative job, which I, I think I was at best a half time dean of this school. So I, uh, after eleven years, I I really was ready for a change. Uh, I, it, I've gotten a my, one of the things that I think all balancing all of these balls had done is it wrecked my marriage and I got a divorce and I, I was ready to get out of town. Uh, so I started looking for other uh, other opportunities and there was a big deanship that opened up at Penn State University. It was the dean of the College of Arts and Architecture, uh, which was a big responsibility and not one that uh, would be. I could I knew that I couldn't keep my teaching career going if I went there and it was just as well because they didn't have a doctor a performance program anyway but I applied for that job and got it um, the, the, the interesting thing is that the person who hired me at Penn State became one of my real role models in life uh, the, my first role model was Bill Doty who was the, the organ teacher at Texas the second role model uh, was Bryce Jordan who was the president of Penn State by coincidentally, also a musician, also a graduate of the University of Texas, I'd known uh, Bryce when I was a, uh, when I was in Austin. Uh, this he, I, I knew his rep, I knew him by reputation, and in fact, at one at one point early in my career, when I was still an untenured faculty member at Kansas, uh, Doty had Doty had decided to uh, he was the dean at Texas. He had decided that he needed to. He needed to step away from being chair of the music department, and so he created this this position, uh, which which and and Bryce Jordan became the first chair of the music department. Then Bryce became a vice president at Texas, and when Bryce moved up to the uh, vice president's position, Doty said to me, "I was in in about my third year, still didn't have tenure at Kansas," and he said, "I want you to come down and be a candidate for this." He said, "You're not ready for this, but this will be good for you to." Have this experience to be a candidate for a chair position because someday you're going to be doing this. See, so he was he was already he was coaching me and 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 sort of leading me, and so I went. I was a candidate. I was clearly unprepared. I was too young, but and and the faculty I think immediately saw that and they they were highly suspicious of what Doty was up to. But the experience was good for me. Um, so. I applied for this job at Penn State. Bryce Jordan was the president, and he hired me. And 
Um, so I went to, and this was a really big administrative job. Somehow, and I, and I, oh, I said to, when I was inter- being interviewed by the provost at Penn State, I knew I'd, I was determined to keep my concert career going. And I said to him, if I were a chemist, I would tell you I need a laboratory. Well, I'm a performing musician, and I need a practice room. I need, a, a, I need an organ that is only mine in a room that is mine where I can go and practice every day to keep Keep my keep my 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 career going as a performing artist, but I'll be your dean. And and I and I had and they did. They were wonderfully supportive. Bryce Jordan was the president. Bill Richardson was the provost of Penn State at that time, and, and he he became another role model for me. Uh, he later became president of Johns Hopkins and then president of the Kellogg Foundation. And so. Uh, I was able to watch, and this is what's this is where this is important for my later career. I was able to see a really great president in the process of transforming a university. That's what Bryce Jordan was doing at Penn State. Penn State before Jordan got there was a just a, another average land grant university, and under Jordan's leadership, it became a great research university. Uh, he was marvelously, tremendously supportive of the arts. Obviously, he was a musician himself, but he he, he was supportive of science and technology, uh, which was the forte of and engineering, which was Penn State's real forte. And and I I got to see this firsthand. And as a dean at Penn State, which and I had a very big responsibility there with schools of music, theater, visual arts, art history, architecture, landscape architecture, a professional theater company, a center performing arts, an art museum. So the, the, and, and Penn State was just getting involved with, with fundraising and development, so that was my first experience with all of that. It was a tremendous uh, learning responsibility for me, learning the art of of, of academic administration. Uh, I, I I was not really a, an administrator at Kansas, but I was by the time I got to Penn State because I got to study uh, the best uh, the kinds of leadership in both the president and the provost. So you significantly increased your responsibilities at that point. I did. How did, and I, I understand that you were learning from people around you. How did you navigate that? Because you had to have a huge sense of insecurity in that you're stepping into a new role and very different and much bigger. How did how did you navigate the the level of responsibility change in a new space? Well, you know, oddly enough, I didn't have a sense of insecurity. I, I guess I was huh. confident enough in my own ability that I I knew it was a big job. Uh, and I was, but I wasn't intimidated by it. I had, I had, a, I had support from above. I had, and I had a good staff to work with. I had a great time at Penn State, and especially as long as Jordan and Richardson were there, it was, it was one of the most, it was tremendously exciting. And by the way, I was able to keep my concert career going. I, I, I reduced the number of, uh, but I, I, I continued to play well. But as after I'd been there for, a, I was there, I think for six years. Uh, by the end of that period, 
I had I had come to the conclusion that I really needed to set my concert career aside. Uh, for one thing, I'd accomplished all I'd essentially accomplished all my musical goals for myself, um, and it was it, 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 and I was I did have her. The, the one issue I had to deal with was guilt, in, in, internal guilt that I was neglecting one responsibility while I was doing the other. So when if I was practicing, I had guilt that I should be at my desk, and if I was at my desk, I was guilty that I wasn't practicing and, and ultimately I, I realized I, I need to set this aside meanwhile uh, Jordan Jordan retired uh, Bill Richardson was passed over by the trustees at Penn State to be uh, and he went on to be president of, of Hopkins and the next president at Penn State uh, was not as exciting to me, and uh, the atmosphere changed. I was in many ways it was as if the lights had been turned out, and I began to to, to be. And, and oh, one other thing, one other really important thing happened in my life. Uh, the, the, the deanship at U, UT Austin opened up. Dodie retired, and I thought that was the job I was always destined to have, and so I decided to apply for it. And I went in to see Bill Richardson, the provost. And I said, uh, Bill, I want to apply for this job. It's it's the one I'm meant to have. And he said, Well, James, if you want to have that job, I'll help you get it. But I think you're making a big mistake. And I said, Why? And he said, Well, Bryce and I've been talking about you. Um, first, in the first place, it's a lateral move, and why would you want to make a lateral move? And secondly, Bryce and I have been thinking about you, and we think you're you're ready to be a provost someplace. You've got you've got. You got the talent and the ability to do higher administration and do it well, and we think that's what you ought to. That's what you ought to be. Ought to be your. I had never really thought about that. I'd never thought about doing anything beyond arts administration. And so, but Bill Richardson, that's why he was an important mentor for me. Planted this seed just as Doty had when I was 21 years old about academic administration. Bill Richardson planted the seed that I, I should think about being a provost. Well, I did apply for the job at Texas, and I didn't get it. <laughs> Uh, which is one of the, and I, I, I've said many times in talking about leadership, sometimes the doors that get shut in, in your face are the best things that ever happened to you. Because it was when that door was slammed in my face, I started thinking about being a provost. So you took rejection, reframed it, and turned it into a positive. I did. I did. Now, how was that process for you? We've established you have less insecurity than I do. How was it to, to hear that this job you were presumably pretty well qualified for, you didn't get after you had gotten a job that you didn't feel qualified for and did exceptionally? <laughs> Well, I, you know, I was disappointed. Uh, I, I was disappointed, and, I, and um, it just that you know, the, the the guy who got the job was highly qualified, and and he he became actually was a friend, and and a, and a, and a colleague, uh, and I I wasn't bitter about it, but I was disappointed. But you, know, but those things happen. But I then really I changed my focus, and I I thought thought to myself. I do want to get out of Penn. This university is not exciting anymore. It's it's and now that I've been told that I that I can do a job like this, I want to I want to see if I can I want to I want to experience that. So I started applying for provost jobs, and um, and actually two two became available almost at the same time. And the, the and the first one that really was 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 offered was the University of South Carolina, and I took it.
And, and so that was my next move. And, and how long were you there? So this is your first provost role. That's right. I was, I was, the, I was the provost of South Carolina for four years, from 1986 to 1992. Um, and the, the president who, who hired me there was John Palms, who, 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 who himself was, was a reformed president. He had, the, the University of South Carolina had a horrible scandal uh, at, with the previous president who was fired and, and ultimately stripped of his tenure. He was, I won't go into all the details, but this, South Carolina was a badly injured university. And um, I, I had tremendous admiration for Palms, and, and, and he, he had been previously the provost at Emory, uh, a very distinguished nuclear physicist himself. And he took a bet on me that uh, uh, this musician who never held a position at, uh, at, at, you know, at that level before, and we became a team. And so what, was there one quality that differentiated you that allowed you to take that role, allowed him to pick you? I don't know, but I, I'll never forget the, the interview that I had with him, uh, which, and I think this is why he chose me. Uh, and here, here again, I, was, I told him, this is what I said. I said, Dr. Palms, as I look at the University of South Carolina, it's not a great university. It has, but I've had, I have, this is what I've just observed at Penn State, and this is the one thing from the president that I wasn't so, so keen about, but he had done one thing which I really admired, uh, and that was called the, the University Future Committee at Penn State, in which we had, uh, all the deans had to write negative budgets and for uh, the next three years, and, and there was a major internal reallocation of funds. <laughs> Uh, at Penn State. And I, so I said to Palms when he was in our interview, I said, you know, South Carolina is not a great university, but I, if I were your provost, this is what I would do. I would, I would, I would copy what we just did at Penn State and institute a, a massive program of internal reallocation and then take that, the money that we've, that we've, that we, that we're, that we have, that we have collect and and reallocate it back to centers of excellence. And the way I would do this is to is I would spend my first four or five months on this campus finding out who the most respected faculty are on this campus. And from that group, I would assemble a, 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 a faculty committee that would actually make these these really hard decisions. Because I only with a with the fact the committee of the most respected faculty on this campus, that's the only way that we could pull this off. And, and politically survive and 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 accomplish this and and he he liked this and, and that's exactly what we set about to do. Cool. So with that, I think we're going to take a break. And, and again, I'm loving hearing both how you mostly succeeded, but also turned rejections into new opportunities to really progress both yourself, your career, and the organizations in which you work. So this is Maureen Metcalf, joined by James Meeser, and we are talking about his career from student to musician to university administration. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. 
Metcalf & Associates is a management consulting and leadership development firm dedicated to helping leaders, their management teams, and their organizations implement innovative leadership and business practices to help create market differentiation necessary to thrive in this rapidly changing environment. As the author of eight award-winning leadership books, Maureen Metcalf and her associates are positioned to help you and your organization grow and thrive. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen is ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your needs through her expertise in keynote speaking, leadership coaching and training, transformational and organizational growth consulting. For your business, we can help with facilitated leadership retreats, organizational planning, culture alignment, individual and organizational assessments, online leadership development programs, and one-on-one or corporate-wide leadership development sessions. Move forward with Metcalf & Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. What is the forum? It's an engaged discussion with the forward-thinking experts in today's business world. Hosted by Seema Vasa, an entrepreneur and thought leader. This is a place where you can come to talk, ask, and trust. We're not looking to sell you anything, but we are here to tell you the truth. If you want to hear about honest perspectives and winning success stories, listen for The Forum, live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. You're joining Maureen Metcalf and Dr. James Mieser talking about his career through music into university administration. So when we left off, you were at the University of South Carolina and had instituted what sounds like a revolutionary program to change the university. Uh, Let's pick up from there. Yeah, we call this the university. I just shamelessly copied the, I think used the same title that that the president of Penn State had used, the University Future Committee. And I, I did spend my first several months on campus. Uh, I went to every dean and sat in their office and said, and got a list of the most respected faculty in each of one of the schools or colleges of, at, at, at that university. And then ultimately, uh, with the president's support, appointed this group to, and we asked, uh, we asked the deans uh, to submit minus three and minus five percent budget for the for a, a, a next three years. 
And and in so doing, I think we reallocated something like $13 million, which doesn't sound like a lot of money now, but it was a lot of money in 1986, 87. And I think we, I can say with confidence that the University of South Carolina is a much better university today because of that process. Especially, and, and one of the things, uh, the two things I recall that we that actually benefited direct, enormously, one was the library. Uh, we determined that we would never cut the library, no matter what budgets we had to cut, and, and, and uh, information technology. Ah. So what did you do with information technology? Well, we, 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 really, worked on, we, we really worked on, uh, that was mostly teaching technology in those days. It was, it was creating the first smart classrooms uh, on the South Carolina campus. And we did a lot of, a lot of, of retrofitting, of, of physical renovation of, 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 of academic spaces in order to, and I think I want to move us on to Nebraska because I, I, I did did many of the same things at the University of Nebraska as chancellor that I did as provost um, while I was at South Carolina. While, while I was at South Carolina, I, I, I suddenly I began to realize, and that's where the presidential book, I guess, began to bite me, uh, that we, it looked like, from my perspective as the provost, <laughs> that being president was a lot more fun than being provost. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I can tell you that that's true. I, there, there, the first thing I observed when I went to South Carolina from Penn State was that I thought I had a big job at Penn State. But my, what was what was my inbox at 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 Penn, at Penn State became a conveyor belt on the provost uh, desk at at South Carolina because everything the president sent down everything he didn't want to deal with and of course everything from the faculty and the deans bubbled up so uh, I used to say that presidents get to cut ribbons and provosts to get to cut budgets and uh, and the provost job is mostly mostly uh, you know that's why they they call it the, the, in the renaissance they call it the jail the prison they called it the provost that's uh, and the provost is a disciplinarian uh, isn't it's not really a fun job but it's a very important job it's arguably it's the chief operating officer of the of the of an institution but i decided if i could do this job then why not do the, why not go for the big cheese and i be, i began searching out presidencies and chancellor's positions and that led me to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And I, I, I want to touch on that briefly, and then I want to get us to North Carolina, which is where I had my most significant position. But I can do Nebraska fairly quickly because I, I did the same thing in Nebraska that I did at South Carolina. Um, UNL, the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, has is a better university than South Carolina, but it, too, is not a great university. It's a very good university. But we did this, a, a similar process of internal reallocation of what I <laughs> was sometimes labeled by my critics as academic chemotherapy, by the way. <laughs> but it, but it, but it, it's a process by which you can, you can make uh, an average university far better by, by, this is what John Palmsky used to call building cathedrals of excellence, building these towers of, of excellence across a, an otherwise nondescript landscape. 
So I'm going to move us now on because I know time's an issue in here. I want to move on to Carolina. I came to Chapel Hill in 2000 as, as chancellor. And one of the first questions that was asked me by the faculty when, once I got here, they'd obviously read uh, my resume, and they knew what I did at South Carolina, and they knew what I did at at Nebraska, and there was, I think, some obviously some trepidation here that here comes this guy who's cut, who's slashing and burning two institutions, and they said, "Are you going to do at, Carol, at, at, at Chapel Hill what you did down at South Carolina?" And I, and, and I said, "Absolutely not," because and they said, "Well, why?" And I said, "It's very simple." This is a very different university. This is a great university, and we're not going to we're not going to we're not going to be taking from people and moving stuff around. We're going to this is this university is one of the great universities in this country, and we're going to just build on that. In fact, we're not going to tolerate anything that is less than excellent. It's going to be excellent, or we're just not going to do it. Um, I should say a little bit about what the scene was here when I when I came in two thousand. Um, it was in many ways a demoralized great university uh, with with a, a huge uh, backlog of deferred maintenance. That, and my predecessor, Michael Hooker, had died in office. He had uh, he was a young man in his forties, uh, a, a brilliant young scholar who got a terrible cancer and with with died within twelve months of his diagnosis. I mean, it was a it was a shock to the campus. Um, at the same time, I discovered later, Michael Hooker would have probably, if he hadn't gotten ill, might have been, uh, might have been fired by the faculty, but with a vote of no confidence from the faculty or by the system head, because things were not really going well. Um, so it, 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 this was a demoralized place. Um, there was no, the provost had retired. There was no chief financial officer it was the the team was waiting to be built uh, so i walk so here i walk in but to me this all what some would see as a as a all a negative environment a great university that's that's in a sort of state of of malaise frankly i saw as a tremendous opportunity and it was you know timing is everything in in especially in politics and music is and in hand grenades and <laughs> I, stick with my, music. and my timing was perfect um I got here in August of 2000. On the ballot in November was a, the North Carolina higher education bond issue, which, and in fact, my job when I first got here was to go around with the other chancellors and with the system president campaigning for this bond issue because it had to pass it, it had to pass a referendum in the general election on the November ballot. It was, uh, it was, and still is to this day, the largest higher education construction bond issue ever passed by any state. It was $3.2 billion uh, for the UNC system and the 50-some-odd community colleges across the state. It passed in North Carolina in all 100 counties by a huge plurality, 75% plurality, if I, if I recall. So this was a tremendous infusion of, 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 of capital. Also, the other thing that the other thing that was handed to me just as I walked in the door was about sixty-five 
new faculty lines as a result of enrollment growth. And uh, one the acting provost, in my first year, the acting provost came to me and said, well, the, med- the dean of the medical school and I think that this would be a great time for us to invest in genomics and genetics and to create a program. Oh, and cool. so we, we allocated 18 faculty lines to uh, across uh, across the a wide spectrum of depart- schools and departments, not just the medical school and the school of public health and pharmacy, but also uh, chemistry and philosophy, you know, ethics chair in the college, uh, uh, library and information science. Eighteen positions, and we hired Terry Magnuson from Case Western Reserve, who was one of the no- most noted geneticists in the in the United States. He brought with him his whole. Re- research team and 10,000 mice, and we launched Carolina's investment in this critical field of science. Today, UNC is, is a national leader in genome science. Uh, that all started in my first year, and it was the result of good fortune, good timing, good advice, and, and a critical decision. I hear a trend here because you were thinking strategically here, obviously, later in your career, but it sounds like a similar gut instinct, and I realize leadership is learned and honed over decades, but a similar gut instinct of what you had in Kansas in your first role. Well, there is a certain, yeah, there was a, yeah, I think there are some parallels there. Uh, and I don't know if that, if that's innate, but I, I certainly had good teachers and good role models that, 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 that gave me the courage and, 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 and said, yes, go for this, do it. Um, so, uh, so it, I was, I was chancellor for eight years. Um, we, I, I like to think that that my my eight years. And by the way, I left. I said timing is is everything. I left in July of two thousand and eight. I think the economy crashed a month later. Uh, the the recession of two thousand and eight. So I was I I was I, I just happened to be very very fortunate and lucky. Remember, Napoleon once was once asked what he what he sought in his generals, and he said, more than anything else, I want generals who are lucky. So on that note, let's move to, in the, in the final couple of minutes, what would you like young leaders and experienced leaders to take away from your experience? I think the first thing I want is, is the importance of role models and, and, ha- and having good role models. Uh, and if, uh, I, I tell students when I speak to young when graduating classes or, or for the last eight years I taught a first-year seminar, on this campus after I left the chancellor's office. And I used, and I always tell students that they should be assembling, at the time, right now, no matter where they are in their life, assembling an imaginary board of directors, a board of trustees, advisors, people who, whose judgment they trust, whose support they have, who will always tell them the truth, and who, who set good examples in their own lives and, 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 and it should be an evolving board of, of as, as they go through life, they will, they will, you know, some people will rotate off, 
and they'll add new members. As, 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 so that's, that's very important. The second thing I, I think I want to say is that I think, there, I think people are born with natural uh, leadership instincts, but these can be developed and learned and, and, and honed. And, and no matter what skills one has, whether one is a one-talent or five-talent or a ten-talent individual, uh, you, you, by, by study and by, by rigorous, uh, just shamelessly copying other people who are successful, you can, you can improve your skills. So basic hard work. And yeah. well, and it sounds like you had positive and negative role models, and you used both of those to learn from. So I instead did. of whining I about did. that guy's bad, you said, I, "I'm going to be not that." That's right. <laughs> cool. So, any final words as we wrap up? Well, I think the one question you haven't asked me is is why why somebody in the arts uh, and I actually have a belief that that the arts are an important um, way of learning leadership and skills. I once said that anyone who could direct a church choir can lead a university, and and why why did I say that? That's a, that's I mean it was sort of a it's a joke, right? But it's also it's, there's also truth there because in 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 a church choir. There's all kinds of politics. There are all kinds of personal relationships. Academic leadership is mostly about convincing people. There's no, there is, we are not autocrats in these jobs. We, we succeed only by our ability to convince people that the course of action that we're advocating is the right one. And, and, and no one ever, no one ordered a church choir, no one ever ordered an orchestra. Well, yes, they do in an orchestra. That's different. Uh, those are autocrats. <laughs> My point is that academic leadership is about persuasion, not, not uh, command and control. And, you know, I want to wrap up on that point. As we've talked about innovative leadership and the idea that how we lead has evolved over time, there was a time when command and control was appropriate to the world in the Industrial Revolution, and now we've evolved to analogy or whatever terminology we put on that, and how we lead has evolved and and must evolve for our organizations to be effective. So I love how how you've talked about even the negative leader early on being fairly autocratic. And and I heard a lot of creating buy-in at different points in starting in South Carolina. And and it probably started in Kansas, but in your conversation I heard it in South Carolina. And I would love to continue talking about this, but I realize we have exceeded our time. So this is James Meeser, Maureen Metcalf, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. We would love to hear your input uh, at either email me at at info at metcalf-associates.com or on Facebook at Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. Thank you for joining us this week. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope to see you here next week.